This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So starting Romans 9 from verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory. Their covenants the receiving of the law, the temple, worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, 
even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Well, as you can see, we're going fast. So we were going slow, and now we're going fast. Uh, So I am so glad that I made the call that the host would read the readings in this series. Uh, So uh, thanks, Florence. Um, In 2010, uh, American Republican politician Sarah Palin asked a convention audience, how's that hopey, changey stuff working out for you? She's basically having a go or had her sights set on the um, 
current president of the United States, or or will soon to be the past president of the United States, but he'd been in office for just over a year, and he'd opened his landslide victory uh, with these words, nothing can stand in the way of the power of millions of voices for change. In the unlikely story that is America, there's never never been anything false about hope. Yes, we can heal this nation. Yes, we can repair this world. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And it's really interesting that that Obama had kind of done uh, whatever your politics, and probably most of you think, I don't even care, but you probably will uh, with the next president. But, uh, you know, that you're probably not really into it. But basically, Sarah Palin was from a group called the the Tea Party. Uh, Not that they like to have tea and scones like the British, but the aka the Boston Tea Party, the ones who are kind of taking back America for themselves. And she basically said, it's all right for Obama. He stands up and makes these great speeches. And let's face it, a year and a bit into office, everyone was saying, well, how's that hopey, changey stuff going for you? Because actually, it's a lot, lot harder to actually make it happen. It's a lot, lot harder to... To, uh, to make, change the world, change the nation. And he says there's nothing false about hope, but often we find in the world that hope does seem false. And so what happened is it seemed like Sarah Palin was the, the start of a, a new kind of cynical politician. So instead of saying, yeah, we can change the world, let's do something, she said, let's just criticize. And I would say the last campaign in the States, and certainly the, the Brexit campaign in the UK, was seemed all about cynical, small-mindedness, self-centeredness. You know, we've really given up on hope. And actually, it's interesting as we kind of journey through Romans that that Paul has done some amazing oratory around Romans 8. And it's almost like he's done a kind of Obama-style plus speech. Uh, We did some of it last time. Let me just pick out some verses. We hope, there is that word, we hope for what we do not yet have. We wait for it patiently. And we know that in all things, God works for good of those who love him. We sang that in our song. Who is called according to his purpose. For God, those God foreknew, he also predestined. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he glorified. For I'm convinced that nothing in all creation, and he lists a load of stuff, will able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 is massively full of hope. It's full of hope that's not seen, but yet we hope for it anyway. It's, it's hope for a world that's going to change. And we talked last time, if you were with us, we talked about, you know, how do you live in a world that's broken, but yet a world that's promised to be different? And, and, it, and, and Paul talked about groaning and, and pleading and praying for a world to be different, but yet the world seems broken. But when Paul's to, uh, letter was read out in the church in Rome in AD 57, some of the people in, the, in that church would have been Jews, and they would have said, yeah, how's that hopey, changey stuff working for us? They might have said, well, it's okay, you know, you can say, Paul, hang on, you can say when God calls someone, he's going to bring them all the way home. You know, nothing can separate from his love. But what about us Jews? God called us all those years ago and came to us, yet most of our people have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So maybe God's calling and purpose can be rejected. If God's promised that Israel would be his people, God promised that Israel would be his people, but yet they seem to have rejected that. Where does that leave God's promises, his faithfulness? Has his hope failed? Have the Jews been separated from the love of God? And the Jews are asking, okay, we've had these amazing promises, and, 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 you, and you read them out through the Old Testament, and yet it seems like at this point, it's all gone terribly wrong. It seems like God has started a project with the Jews to make them these people and then they've all rejected him apart from a really small number. 
And what's happened in the church in Rome was what's happening across the world. And what's happened across the world is actually the people who are Gentiles, people who are non-Jews, have actually believed in Jesus. And so the Jews are thinking, well, hang on a minute, what about us? And in one sense you might think, well, I'm not a Jew, I'm not bothered. But actually it does matter to you because if God promises you something and then it seems like he doesn't deliver... That's a problem for us because we've been listening, we've been reading through Romans and God's promised us amazing things if we belong to Christ. But what if His word is false? What if it's just a whole hope He changes stuff and it doesn't deliver? And you can look at the world like we talked about last week. You can look at the world and say, well, where is it then? Where's all that great stuff that's happening? Look at the pain and the suffering and the disease. Look at, look at the sin. Look at the sins against me. Look at the sins I struggle with. How's that hope He changes stuff working? It doesn't seem to be working really well. And Paul's kind of continuing this theme of, some people say Romans 9, 10 and 11, that's a kind of a little kind of section and really what we should just do is jump onto Romans 12 because there's a lot more hopey, changey stuff there. But actually he's asking a really valid question, can God be trusted? Can God's word be trusted? But his first, Paul's first point of engagement is he actually feels deeply empathizes with his Jewish heritage. If you, Paul, if you remember, is a Jew, born a Jew, circumcised, tribe of Benjamin, you know, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a Jew of Jews, but yeah, he's also a Roman citizen. And God has given him the job to tell the non-Jews about it. So he gets this. He's in both kind of worlds. He understands, I'm a Jew, these are my people, but God has sent me to these other people. But what's his first response? I think we can learn loads from his first response. Because he deeply empathizes with his Jewish heritage. He says this, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it, though through the Holy Spirit. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I could be cursed and cut off from Christ, for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. It's really interesting. Paul has said in the last few verses, he said, nothing can separate me from the love of God. But then when he looks at the state of his ethnic group, the Jews, and how they've rejected Jesus, and, and, it, and he just feels sad about it. He's in sorrow and anguish, and he says, oh, this is terrible. This shouldn't have happened. And he says amazingly, he says, I wish that I was cursed. Actually, the word he used there is an anathema. In fact, the popes in, in, in later time used to use this word anathema and say, if somebody's cut off, excommunicated from God, they became an anathema. You might even have heard the word and think, well, I don't know what that means. Actually, Paul uses this word in, uh, anathema, which means I'm cursed and cut off. What would happen in, in, the, in the Old Testament would be that when the Jews had a big battle, they'd get a whole load of plunder, and instead of keeping it and putting it in their back pockets, God says, no, you've got to destroy it. It's an anathema, it's got to be cut off and destroyed. So Paul is saying, I myself would rather be cut off and destroyed. Cut off often talks about death. Cut off and destroyed. I'd, be, I'd rather die away from Jesus, if my people knew Jesus. That's how strongly he feels it. I think Martin Luther, it's always good to quote uh, an old German, it seems incredible that a man would desire to be damned, cut off from Christ and cursed, in order that the damned might be saved. Where have we seen that before? Where have we seen that before? Who is the one who's cursed and cut off for his people? 
It's the Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus takes up his cross and says, I will be cursed. I'll be taken outside the city wall. I'll be cut off and destroyed. I'll die for my people. But Paul looks at what's happened and it seems like they've rejected God. And he said, actually, I'll be in that place. I'll take up my cross and I'll be cut off and cursed for the sake of my own people. I'd rather that I face judgment than they face judgment. I mean, I probably could preach this little moment and we could stop, and you might wish I did that, but, but I felt like, as I'm preparing that, I thought, what is my response to the broken world that I live in? What is my response to my ethnic group and their rejection of Jesus? What's your response? I mean, I think we tipped around the gospel of good news of Jesus, scared to offend. We've been told that it's not the sort of thing to talk about in polite conversation. In fact, my wife, just to embarrass her here, she's not on kids' work, so she gets embarrassed this week. Uh, she was going for a dog walk this morning, and she's determined like a, to give away her Christmas invites. So she's got them in her back pocket. We go out armed with them, so we're gradually collaring people. And um, we'd also said that Tim Chester, you know, who spoke a few weeks ago, said, speaking about Jesus is always clunky. It never feels right. It always feels awkward. But Nazi's great at it. And so she, we've walked next to this, we've chatted to this dog walker called Alan, he doesn't know our names, he just knows our dog name. But we know his name, and I don't know his dog's name. But that probably says something about dog walkers. But Naomi kind of gives him, says, would you like to come to our carol service? And he immediately says, oh, I don't know, that old rubbish. And she, you know, I'd, I'd, I think it's a complete ridiculous kind of waste of capital. It's, you know, loads of money, people getting in debt. You know, it's nothing to do with, with anything. And, and, and Naomi goes, no, I don't think it's it. And she's determined to get Jesus in and said, actually, it's about Jesus. And it's like, when you mention the word Jesus, <laughs> you know, whatever. And so there's a little bit of a conversation. And then she says, oh, I, do I go to church? La, la, la. Do your kids, do you drag your kids to church? She said, no, no, they go. And what does your husband do? Well, then we're really in it. Isn't it? And then he starts to apologize, doesn't he, for being a bit negative. I love it. It's great, my job. It's easy to get to Jesus when people say, what do you do for a living then? But it feels clunky, doesn't it? And it feels like, oh, why did I do that? Why did I step out like that and do that? And, and because we get more animated about football teams. You know, we do. So I know in church, if you make a comment about football team, people go, woo, or woo. And I'm sure it's in America. You know, you, you mentioned the, the Cardinals. What is it? St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned somebody. And you get all this. And people are animated football team. You mention Jesus, people are... You know... We, we talk more animatedly about our, the make of our phone to people. You're not Apple? What's your problem? You're not Apple! You know, you sinner, you unbeliever, let me talk to you about the gospel of Apple. We're happy to cross those boundaries, but when it comes about Jesus, we think, whoa, no, I'm not going to talk about him. But Paul is saying, no, I'm not in unceasing anguish about those trivial things. I'm in unceasing sorrow and anguish about the state of the world around me, the people, my people, who don't know Jesus. I think we could stop there. There's probably, if you take nothing else, we've got a long passage to work through, and I'm going to try to race through, but, but if you take nothing away, Paul is saying, I would rather be dead away from Christ, I'd rather go to hell and have my nation go to Jesus in heaven, glory. Wow. How little do we care? We need to be like Paul about our people. 
Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, As Christ's ambassadors, on Christ's behalf, we groan and beg and plead those in our broken world be reconciled to God. In Romans 8, the world is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. And Paul's joining in and saying, I'm groaning, I'm in sorrow and anguish. Come on, this gospel should work. We should feel the same groaning when people don't get saved. When the church stats get less and less and less, we should feel the same frustration. But Paul's anguish and shock is even more pointed because because Israel's got loads of things going for them. They've had all the good newses. They've been on all the Alpha courses, the 3 to one courses. They've grown up with it. They've been to Sunday school. They've been circumcised. They've had all the info. Paul summarizes this. He says, theirs is the adoption of sonship. As God called Israel out of Egypt, he says, out of Egypt I call my son. Theirs is the divine glory. Their job was to shine out and to show what God's people were like. That was their job in the world. That's our job, by the way, now. These are all our job now, but God's image in the world. Theirs is the covenants and the promises. Blessed to be a blessing. That's what Abraham's promises. We'll bless you to be a blessing. Theirs was the receiving of the law. They were a nation shaped by God's word. Theirs were the temple worship. That's an actual phrase where it meant priests bringing sacrifices for sin. Theirs is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. And theirs is the human ancestry of the Messiah, Jesus, who's praised forever. You think... If they'd been given all this information of all these privileges, they'd been downloaded all this stuff, Paul is thinking, and the Jews must have been thinking, how on earth could the Jews have said, away with him, crucify? And you like to think, don't know, if I'd have been around then, Jesus had done all that stuff and done all that good stuff, I'd have said, of course, Jesus, you're the Son of God, wouldn't we? We wouldn't have been in that crowd, would we? Of course not. But actually, that's what the, mass, the masses did. A few, a very small number, thought, Jesus, you're the Messiah. I don't know if you've ever driven a car in, in family convoy. Um, and what happens is you all basically say, well, we're going here and here and here. And, and, and somebody says, well, it's there and there. And, and everybody's, I don't know what type of person you are. After the first instruction, I'm gone. You know, <laughs> some of you might think, oh, I'll listen carefully. But, but what they do is just say, oh, we'll just follow so you all set off in your cars, somebody's at the front, you all set off in your cars, and then what happens is, imagine what happens is, you, you go this way, let's do a turn, you go this way, and they all go straight on. You, you feel kind of anxious, don't you? Have you ever had that happen to you? And you think, how could they miss the obvious signs? How could they miss the obvious signs? Have they deliberately ignored them? It said clearly this way. This way for Jesus. Jesus is the way, this way. And they've all just driven on. And Paul's thinking, have I gone wrong? No, there's no way I've gone wrong. It must be them. They've they've taken a wrong turning. Where will they end up? So what happens is Paul gets out his map, as you do when you take a wrong turning, and say, now let's just check. I know most people don't. Who does maps? Just I'm worried. As a geography teacher, I'm worried. The decreasing number of people who do maps. Because now we just put it in, don't we? Google Maps. That's not maps. You put in, da, 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 click. You get all these big Polish lorries arriving in small villages trying to get through a little, a little passageway, don't you? Because nobody does maps anymore. But Paul says, well, let's get out the map. Where's my Bible? Quick, I need my map. He says, let's get out the map. So he gets out the map. It's only half of this book he's got. 
But he gets out the Old Testament and says, right, let's check the map. Let's see where they went wrong. Let's see the wrong turning. And although I'm not going to do it all for you, he unpacks, starting with the beginning, and says, well, let's check where they made the wrong turning. Because it's really important to find out, has God's word failed? And he looks at the map and says, no, the map's not wrong. First thing I'll check, the map's not wrong. You can trust the map. So he says, well, where did they make their mistake? And he kind of says, well, what happens is the Jews would have understood that there was this one guy who was living in what is now kind of Iraq, in a town called Ur, which is near, in between kind of Baghdad and Basra, in that kind of place there. He's living in that town place, and God comes to him and says, follow me. It's almost like all the people, I don't know how many people on the earth at the time, and God chooses this one guy called Abraham and says, why don't you leave where you are, Follow the map, go to a place I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And he promises all your descendants are going to have, uh, I'm going to bless all your descendants, They're going to, you're going to be the heir of the world. And I think all Jews would have got that. Yeah, yeah, Abraham's our father, he, we're descended from him. But what happens is, they kind of like stopped looking at the instructions after that. It's almost like they heard the first bit of instructions, well, you follow Abraham. And then they've just forgotten the instructions because actually what Paul says is, actually if you read the Bible, God keeps on choosing. He keeps on choosing. He doesn't just choose Abraham, he keeps on choosing. Let's read it. Oh, no, before that he says, just where everybody went wrong, he says, not all who are descended from Israel, that's Jacob or Israelites, are Israel. What are you talking about? And not everybody who's Abraham's descendants are Abraham's descendants or Abraham's children. What are you on about? He says, let me explain. God starts with Abraham and he says, and then this is what happened. For not all who were descended from Israel, Israel, nor because are they who are Abraham's descendants are Abraham's children. On the contrary, in other words, it's exactly different. It's through Isaac that your offspring would be reckoned. In other words, Abraham had two boys. Ishmael and Isaac that receives the promise and Ishmael doesn't. Goes on, doesn't it? Uh, Isaac has sons. What are their sons' names? Jacob and Esau. The older one's called Esau and the younger one's called Jacob. And actually, let's read it. It says, it says um, it's through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, not through Ishmael. In other words, it's, it's not the children by physical descent of God's children, but the children of the promise. Isaac, you're a child because of the promise. You have Abraham's promise on you. And then Rebekah's children, conceived in the same way by Isaac, by our father Isaac. But yet before the twins were born, uh, that's Jacob and Esau, and or done anything good or bad. So he's not saying, well, I like him because he's good or he's a bad one. or No. In order that God's purpose in choosing or election might stand, that not by works, in other words, it's not because they've done anything good or bad. She said, the older will serve the younger. Just as it's written, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. God keeps on choosing. He keeps on choosing. All the way through, God's choosing. He's, uh, there's a king called Saul and there's a boy called David. He says, I've rejected you and chosen you. All the way through, God is choosing. Now, here's the mistake where they missed the turning. Because what they thought was, if you were descended from Abraham, you were definitely on the right road. But that was the mistake. They thought just physically being descended from Abram put them on the right road. 
But actually, he's saying, just being physically descended from Abraham is just the start of the road. It's almost as if, um, in this country, um, 60, 60% of people in this country tick, I'm Christian, in the census, 2011 census. 60% of the Christian. Why did they do that? Because they think, oh, I'm born in a Christian country. Am I a Jedi Knight? Am I this? Am I this? Oh, no, I'm, I'm a Christian. And they think it's just ethnic. Just, well, that's what I am. I'm Irish. I'm Catholic. You know? I'm English. Well, I don't know where I am, but it must be Christian somewhere. C of E. Whatever, yeah? Are all those people Christians? No, I agree with you. It's unlikely. Living in a Christian country doesn't make you a Christian, does it? I think my youth leaders used to say, being born in a car doesn't make you... Being born in a garage doesn't make you a car, does it? Being born in England doesn't make you a Christian. What about the 10% of people go to church? 10% of the population go to church. I think that seems quite large, doesn't it? Are they all Christians? They might be. We don't know, do we? Because going to church doesn't make you a Christian, does it? Somewhere along the road... We've just thought, yeah, Christian country, go to church. Somewhere there's a turning that you've got to take. There's a turning where actually God is saying, I'm calling you down this turning. Come this way, come this way. It's called faith in Jesus. It's called put your trust in Jesus. Paul says it in Romans 8, in a passage that I missed out last week on purpose because I'm going to mention it here. It says, those God has called or predestined, in other words, before you were born, before you've done anything good, God called you chose you, picked you out, called you, and then he called you and then he justified you, made you as if you never sinned because of Christ. He said, those he justified, he also glorified, they're going to make it right in the end. If you're a Christian, you didn't get to choose. I know there's lots of churches will tell you otherwise, but the Bible tells you, no, you didn't get to choose. You did get to respond to God's call, but ultimately the first call is from him. How do you know you're a Christian then? Because you're just coming along here. You're in a Christian country, inverted commas, less so. How do you know? Paul told us in Romans 8, didn't say, those who are led by the Spirit, those who have the Spirit of God, that's how you're Christian. If you can feel, God, you're my Father, that's how you know. That's the turning, and that's where you end up. But Paul says, no. It, 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 they missed the turning. John, Jesus says the same thing. He says, no one can come to the God Father who sent me. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I'll raise them up on the last day. You can't come to God unless God says come. Now you can quote other verses and we'll quote on the other side in a minute. But actually you can't come to God unless God comes. God is going to make you alive from the dead. It's like you're Lazarus in the tomb and God says come out. That's how you're a Christian. Okay, so if God is choosing some and not choosing others, that kind of solves one problem. Well, why have some of the Jews kind of abandoned Jesus? But it creates a whole other problem, doesn't it, that Paul starts to, ad- starts to address, and I really must race now. He said, well, how can it be anybody's fault then? So you remember the family discussion, the family driving, you have the big powwow afterwards, and somebody's blaming somebody. And they said, well, how can you say it's my fault? This big articulated lorry came in the way and I couldn't see what was happening and I just went straight on. How can you say it's my fault? Well, you know, it's all right for you because you had Jesus in the car telling you which way to turn. What about me? And, and, it, and he said, well, 
is it, it must be God's fault then, because God could have easily gone in, in the car with everybody and made everybody turn. How could it be my fault that I missed the turning? It raises the question, is God unjudge, unjust in judging those who missed the Jesus turning because he didn't talk, call them? Paul says it in, in uh, 9.14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? He doesn't even give chance for you to answer. He says, no, no, sorry, not at all. And then he quotes Moses from Exodus. Now, if you know the Exodus story, basically they've come out from the, they've come out from, uh, the Red Sea. He's, he's going through the whole map, by the way. I'm not doing all of them, I'm just jumping in a few turns. Comes, they've come out of, across the Red Sea, the children of Israel, and they're heading for the Promised Land, and they get to Mount Sinai, and what happens at Mount Sinai? Moses goes up on the mountain, and God gives him the law. What do the people do while they're waiting? Build a golden calf, have a sex party. What? You've just come out of Egypt with these amazing, miraculous powers that I've shown you, and now... 40 days, 50 days later, you're saying, oh, it's all a load of bunk. And God says, I'm done with them. I think he's testing Moses. I'm done with them. And Moses says, no, 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 no. He says, please forgive their sin. He says, right, blot me out of the book of life. Let me be cursed. Take me out of the book of life and let them be in. Who's that sound like? Sounds like Paul in chapter 9, verse 1, doesn't it? Moses has said, take me out of the book of life. Curse me. And not them. Why have you chosen me and not them? Why are they in that sin? They've done their own thing. It's their own fault. They're responsible. But, they're, but Moses say no. And there's a big discussion and it rolls on into chapter 33. And, and, and God says, tell me who you, uh, Moses says, tell me who you are. Tell me who you really are. Show me your glory. And he says these, he says, I'll let my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim my name to you, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. He says, uh, and then it says, I will have mercy on who I have mercy and on compassion on who I have compassion. For God to say to the people, the golden, golden calf, you're done, is that unmerciful? God can do what he wants. You know that song where it says, he does what he wants. We sing it at football, you know, he's so-and-so, so-and-so. He does, none of you ever heard that, have you? He does what he wants, yeah? So there was a Leeds fan that sat among the Liverpool fans on Tuesday night, and there's a little video on, on Twitter. I really should get a life, shouldn't I? And he's like sitting there with his lead shirt on around all these Liverpool fans, and they all, all the Leeds fans are singing, he sits where he wants. He sits where he wants. He's Leeds United. He sits where he wants. God can do what he wants. God can do what he wants. He saves who he wants. So answer these questions. So these are not rhetorical. I want you to answer. Is God merciful if he serves one rebellious sinner? Is God merciful if he serves millions of rebellious sinners? Is God merciful if if he doesn't save everyone? Yes, he is. He's still merciful if he doesn't save everyone. He saves who he wants. But do you know what? We like it if we've been chosen. If we've gotten turned the right way, we like it. It means God's picked me out. It's nice to be chosen, isn't it? Being chosen is a really, really nice thing. I don't know if you've ever had those football lineups. They used to do them at school before political correctness got in. And they'd say, right, okay, two captains, pick, pick. And then you'd be standing there, wouldn't you? 
you know, and you got chosen. Whoa. And then they'd say, no, Kellett and him, you go on that team. <laughs> it's nice to be chosen. There's something about being chosen by God, being chosen by, by God and your Father, should make you absolutely delighted. You just think, wow, I'm chosen by God. Some of you might think, I'm rubbish, I'm useless, no one cares about you. No, you're chosen by God. He's picked you out. And he hasn't picked you out because you buffed up and did nicely and went to church and learnt your Bible. He's picked you out in before you were born. He's picked you out. He says, I'll have that one. Why? Just because I choose who I want. And we love all that. It means we're not selected on our good works. It means we can say, there's nothing that I can do that makes God love me more. And how does it finish? And there's nothing I can do that makes God love me less. Why? Because God's chosen you regardless of how you do. He's chosen you based on Christ, your faith in Christ. He says, doesn't he? Paul says it in our chapter before. He says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Great. Uh, In John, Jesus says, none can pluck the sheep from my hand. I've chosen you. That is great. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you're incredibly secure. If you're a churchgoer, hmm, maybe not. But if you've put your faith in Christ, you're held in his hand incredibly secure. We're chosen in Christ. Chosen in the chosen one. Loved in the loved one. Sons in the true son. I mean, I often complain about kind of Cheltenham life. I was talking to some guys who went out for a drink on Friday night and we talked about sort of Cheltenham life. And I caricature Cheltenham life like a large sofa that you can just sit back in and it just go, and you just feel yourself sinking in. Isn't life in Cheltenham lovely? Yes. Tea, you know, whatever. Yes, the latest box sets. I, they, they also said it's also box sets and large TVs. I don't know why I use those as examples of wasteful time. But, you know, there it is. It's like, but actually this truth is a sofa that you can sit in and go, oh, I'm loved. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He's chosen me. Even though I'm stupid, he loves me. Even though I'm messed up, he loves me. Even though I know I'm sinful, he loves me. Isn't that a great truth? You can stand that God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit has given us. Wow. Brilliant. But you know the trouble with this truth, and I really am getting there, the reading was long, so it's not me, honest. <laughs> the truth is that most people don't like this. They say, how can you be so unfair, God? How can you be so unfair as to say to that person, I'm not choosing you? And we've got to understand that it's almost like, uh, it's not like a football lineup where God says, I love you, you, you. It's almost like a kind of a train crash. A train wreck for destruction. And God's desperately pulling out people while they just hurtle that way. It's almost like they've chosen it. They chose the golden calf. They chose to reject Jesus. They've chosen it. They're responsible for their own choices. And God's reaching in and pulling people out. But yet people say, well, God must be really mean then if he only chooses some people. Paul's answering this question. Surely he could choose everyone. Why does he only choose a few? I think that when I look at Cheltenham and think, why so few people become Christians? Why, God, why aren't you choosing more people? We'll find an answer in a moment. But why isn't God choosing more? And we say to God, you are bad. 
Because you've not chosen. You've made the world like this because you've let sin in and you've done this and you don't. And we like to point the finger at God and say, you haven't chosen everyone, it's your fault. We love to do that, don't we? We love to say it's God's fault, not our fault. We've been doing that right from the beginning. God, you're bad. I'll do it my own way. I'll make my own morality. But Paul says, sorry, you can't do that. Who are you, a human, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, did you make, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of one lump of clay some pottery for special and some for common use? But our view says, well, how's, how, that's horrible, isn't it? Has God really chosen me to be his son and not chosen the person I sit next to at work? Now, you don't know the answer to that. But in one sense, there are some people who feel, well, they've missed the turning. Is it God's fault? It's a tough one. It is a tough one. So let's finish this. So who are the people of God? Paul says, I, he quotes Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. So who are, who are God's chosen people, who they think are God's chosen people ethnically, the Jews? I will call those my people who are not my people. So in other words, he's going to call us, Christians, Gentiles, I'm going to call them my people, even though you weren't my people. And I'm going to call you my loved one, even though you weren't my loved one. Because it's actually really interesting. There's a lot of debate, isn't there, about Israel. I don't know if you go around Christian circles, um, and there's a lot of debate about Israel. And some people say, well, is God going to, what's God going to do with the nation of Israel? When Israel took back its land in 1948, when it builds walls and does things that are incorrect, we would say, everyone says, no, it's almost like the nation of Israel can't do anything wrong because they're God's chosen people. And you get some Christians who say, well, actually, what's going to happen is God's going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. What they should do, do is knock down that dome on the rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque and build God's temple again. That's what should be happening. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, no, there's actually a different temple and a different people. So who is the true Israel? Those who have faith like Abraham. It's not ethnic Israel, it's, it's those who've got the faith of Abraham. We've got it here. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so by the grace may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, those who have the faith of Abraham. In Galatians 3, understand then that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. So the, Israel is those who've got faith in Jesus. And he also tackles the temple thing. Later on in verse 30, he says, So the Gentiles, that be us, who did not pursue righteousness, we haven't looked for godliness, have obtained it, a righteousness by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it was by works. They stumble over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I've laid a stone in Zion that makes people stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in them will never be put to shame. Paul is talking about two passages in Isaiah about the temple. He's talking about the temple, uh, foundation of the temple, and it says that the foundation stone of the temple will be God's king. And then elsewhere in Isaiah it says there's a foundation stone, a temple stone that everyone's going to trip over, and he puts the two together. He's actually saying that, that Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is a true king. Jesus is a temple. Building the temple in Jerusalem has really got nothing to do with God's big story anymore. I know some of you might up and leave. And there might be churches that think, yes. And I'm not saying that the, we've replaced Israel. 
I'm saying we, it's always the same story. We're the faith of Abraham. We're the faith of Abraham. Let me read you two, two passages and then I'm done. 2 Peter puts it better than me. It says, as you come to him, the living stone, who's that? Jesus, same, same idea. Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, have been built into a spiritual temple. Who's the, spirit, who's the temple now? The church. God's people. Not, God, not the church attenders. Those born again by the Spirit of God. You're a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices, acceptable God through Christ Jesus. For he quotes the same passage. So I've laid a stone in Zion, chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone that causes people to stumble and makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. There it is again. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have not received mercy. We're the true Israel and the true temple by faith. really, really matters because it means God is faithful to his promises. He's kept his promises to Abraham and we're the fulfillment of his promises. But let me just pick up a little bit from chapter 10. I'm really done. So what's, what's the response to all this? You should feel secure that you're chosen. You should feel God. It's not, your, not to blame that the world's broken. But what does Paul do? He does two things. He goes back to his brokenness of chapter of 9-1 and he says this, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire. Hear that kind of earnest, anguished groaning. And prayer to God is that the Israelites must be saved. So as you're chosen, you don't sit in that sofa and just say, isn't it wonderful? Actually, you get off the sofa and you get on your knees and you say, God, please save this nation. As Paul prays for Israel, we should pray for this nation. It was great, I had a number of you, more people came to the prayer meeting. But actually, I was talking to somebody on Friday night, he said, why don't we pray more, Howard? And he's not saying let's have more prayer meetings. He said, if prayer is the powerful way to change the world, we should pray more. And Paul is saying, this has all happened. Israel seems to be abandoned, but we don't know the final story. We don't know the final destination. Maybe God can break in and we're going to find that God is going to break in. But he says, now let's pray. God, come, save Israel. God, come, save Chatham, save my family, save my workplace. He's praying because he realizes it's okay for him to be chosen, but everybody else, unless somebody gets involved, God, God isn't going to do it. You can't just sit back and say, well, God, you've chosen people, I'll just sit on my bum. He says, because you've chosen some, I'm going to work hard. Paul, God says to Paul, I've got many people in Corinth. So it says, and so Paul had two and a half years off on holiday on the Mediterranean. No, it says he preached the gospel for two and a half years because he knows if there's some people in this city that God's going to save, we need to get on it. And there's people out there that God has chosen. And we need to pray and we need to tell them. I'm going to read a long bit that says what Paul says that we've got to tell them. Romans uh, 10, 9. This message concerning faith that we became, this faith in Jesus, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and justified and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture said, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. It's the same for Jews and for Gentiles. 
You've got to express your faith in Jesus. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like he said, well, I'm only choosing some. But here he says, no, I'm choosing anybody who calls on me. Jesus says in the same passage where it says, uh, no one can come unless the Father draws him. He says, anyone who comes to me, I'm not going to cast him out. I'm not going to cast him out. When we come and break bread, it's a, it's a response to his invitation. And then Paul finishes, he says, how can they, that's the people who seem to have taken the wrong turning, who've rejected Jesus, how can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they've not heard about? And how can they hear about unless somebody walking their dog starts a conversation with them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? But it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Look at your feet and we're done here. Your feet, you know there's a song that we used to sing, Nancy Sinatra, some of you nodding, these boots will make a walk in and that's what they're going to do. One of these days these boots are going to walk all over you. Yeah, These boots are made for gospel and that's what they're going to do. One of these days these boots are going to walk all over this town. and People are going to be saved. People are going to be saved. God has not abandoned his promise. There's still people out there in desperate need who need us to pray and need us to go. And we go confident that he's chosen some. He's chosen some. They might have taken the wrong turning, but God has still chosen some. He says to us, God first, I've got many people in this town for you. The question is, do we believe it? If we believe it, then we'd stand like Paul who stood like Moses, who stood like Jesus, and said, I'd rather be cut off. I'd rather be cut off so this town could be saved. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.